On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the latest news, the 2023 proposed CMS ASC payment rule, and discuss incident reporting in the ASC for your risk management and QAPI program. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. We would like to thank our sponsors, Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers, Trivalence. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable data insights, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, please visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. Welcome to episode 163 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for July 25th, 2022. Recording from our studio in Spencerport, New York. This is Sue Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. The ASC regulatory environment is extremely dynamic and the material provided in this episode is based on information that is available at the date of the recording. Joining me is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. He is recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. Mr. Gailey is the author of over 10 books on the ASC industry and a frequent industry speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. So we have been very busy. Uh, one of the reasons we're <laughs> still behind in our episodes here, mm-hmm. uh, we have eight wonderful puppies from uh, Rosie, the puppy, uh, <laughs> who is no longer a puppy, obviously. She's a mommy. Yep. We've been talking a lot about it. And of course, everybody knows Rosie, who followed us during the uh, pandemic and since then. So uh, that's been keeping us uh, literally awake at night uh, mm-hmm. dealing with that. But uh, they're five weeks old now as we record this. And that's been a lot of fun. But during that whole time, uh, we've had a lot of surveys. Also, I should point out, too, hopefully we're back to normal with our quality mm-hmm. of our recording. We do ap- apologize because the last episode we did, um, the puppies had just been born and we couldn't actually go down to the studio. So we yeah. used it. We, we created a temporary studio upstairs where the puppies were. Mm-hmm. The sound wasn't great. But the sound wasn't great. So we had yeah. to do a lot of work in post to make it sound better. But, uh, but Sue, I've been busy with these surveys, which, of course, uh, don't wait for puppies. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I think we had something like seven seven surveys over a 14-day period. Mm. So we've been talking a lot about those surveys during our Saturday morning drop-in sessions. Uh, For those that are not aware, if you're a patron member of the podcast or a bootcamp member of our our bootcamp programs, uh, that's one of those exclusive benefits where you can drop in, we call it a drop-in session, drop in Mm -hmm. uh, to a Zoom session every Saturday morning at 10 o'clock. Uh, Eastern Daylight Time right now and uh, and speak to us about various things. And Sue, we've had sometimes 
four surveyors on the uh, mm-hmm. on the drop-in session. You and I enjoy it quite a bit. For some reason, there's been more people on this lately, though. I You don't think it has anything mm-hmm. to do with the puppies making an appearance, <laughs> do you? I don't know. I think that explains a lot of the visitors, though, that yeah. we've been getting lately. <laughs> Suddenly we're we're very up. popular all yes, of a sudden. Right. did also want to point out that we do have an administrator's boot camp coming up. It's filling up fast, and it starts on August 30th. It is, of course, virtual still. Uh, so if you want more information about that, go to ASCPodcast.com. But during one of our Saturday sessions, we had a number of questions about incident reporting, which uh, kind of generated the second part of this uh, week's episode. So make sure you uh, listen intently to this uh, conversation, very important conversation about incident reporting. And Sue, I did go back to see when the last time we talked about yeah. incident reporting alone, and it was actually in the fall of 2018. So it's been yeah. over four years. That surprises me. I know it seems like something we're talking about all the time, but mm-hmm. I think we, we talk about it often in the context mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. other things. And, and this week we're going to talk about it uh, specifically to kind of focus on incident reporting itself. So we do have some recent news. Probably the biggest news, of course, during the month of July has been the publishing of the 2023 Medicare Hospital Outpatient Prospective Payment System and the Ambulatory Surgical Center Payment System proposed rule came out on July 15th. And at that time, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which we all know and love as CMS, proposed Medicare payment rates for the hospital outpatient and ambulatory surgery center services for calendar year 2023. So these are the proposed rules. And both the hospital outpatient department, the HOPD rates, and the ASC payment rate proposed rule uh, is published annually. And uh, we have a 60-day comment period uh, from the date that it was published. So uh, that comment period will go through September 13th, 2022. So if you have anything to say uh, about the uh, various things that were uh, put into this proposed payment rule, you have until September 13th. And, of course, the ASC Association is working on it on our behalf right now to try to make some changes. And then the final rule will be issued in early November. Here are a number of key takeaways from this proposed rule. So CMS is proposing to update the payment rates for hospitals and ambulatory surgery centers that meet applicable quality reporting requirements by 2.7%. And, of course, the increase for hospitals and ASCs is the same. So 2.7%. When inflation is going up 9-plus percent Mm -hmm. is uh, not uh, not great for us, unfortunately. Uh, This update is based on the projected hospital market basket percentage increase of 3.1%, which then is reduced by a 0.4% decrease for the productivity adjustments. So uh, this is a bit of a disappointment, but not Mm -hmm. unexpected given that it's based upon the prior year's inflation rate. And we also have to point out that this is not across the board. We've talked about this a number of times over the years here, but when CMS publishes these numbers, they are further adjusted based upon changes in the case mix for each of the the, uh, specialties, for each of Mm -hmm. the procedures there. So overall, the increase, if you were to take all of the procedures together, the increase is about uh, 2.7%, but it's going to vary sometimes quite dramatically uh, between the different specialties. And the next takeaway, the ASC covered procedures list specifies the list of procedures that can be safely performed in an ASC. CMS evaluates this list each year to determine whether um, procedures should be added or removed from the list. And in calendar year 2023, uh, proposed rule, CMS is proposing to add one procedure, a lymph node biopsy or excision, um, to this list. So just was, the one. Yeah, it's pretty disappointing. I mean, I'm glad that they added this particular mm-hmm. procedure, but 
Uh, there's so many others that I think are worthy of being added. And I know the ASC mm-hmm. Association was quite disappointed uh, with this low number. So yeah. we'll have to see what happens. I know they're going to go back. Rarely do they end up adding procedures uh, in the final rule. Yeah, okay. So I'm, uh, I'm very disappointed about that. And not unexpected, there was a discussion about uh, payment for non-opioid products. And the law requires that the secretary must review payments under the, uh, the hospital outpatient department and the ASC uh, payment rules for opioids. And for 2023, in order to ensure that there are no financial disincentives for using non-opioid pain management drugs in the ASC setting, CMS is proposing a separate payment uh, in the ASC setting for four non-opioid pain management drugs that function as surgical supplies and certain uh, local anesthetics and ocular drugs. So this was very promising that they uh, have added four additional drugs to this list and uh, we'll have the final rule later on so we'll know exactly which drugs are going to be added. Probably the most exciting addition usually is the quality reporting program, which Mm -hmm. was very disappointing. Well, I kind of, in a good way, in in the sense there really wasn't much change this year. Mm -hmm. So the ASC Quality Reporting Program is a pay-for-reporting quality program for the ASC setting, as we all know. Uh, This reporting program requires ASCs to meet certain program requirements, or if they don't meet those requirements, they receive a reduction of two percentage points in their annual fee schedule update. So, for example, if two years ago you didn't file uh, the Quality Reporting Program items instead of a 2.7% increase in 2023, you would only get a 0.7%. Increase, in other words, two point seven minus two percent. So that's one of the reasons that you really have to make sure that you uh, submit this information to the ASCQR, the uh, ASC Quality Reporting Program. So this year there were very minor changes, and actually there really were no changes. CMS is proposing to make the cataracts improvement in patients' visual function within ninety days following cataract surgery, better known as ASC eleven, measure to continue to be voluntary due to the and this was so this was kind of this point. They said that the reason they're making continuing to make it mm-hmm. voluntary is because of the COVID nineteen public health emergency. I mean, I think we all have talked about this a number of times in the podcast that this is just something that shouldn't be put Mm-hmm. on us because we don't have an ongoing relationship with a patient post-cataract. Mm-hmm. Um, and what this requirement would do is that we would have to find out from the patient or from the uh, the surgeon uh, 90 days afterwards whether the patient's uh, acuity improved as a result mm-hmm. of the cataract surgery. Yeah. And, of course, we don't have ongoing contact with those patients, so we don't even know how we would actually do this. So we're happy that it was put on hold yet again. And we're happy that the ASC Association was able to convince CMS that this would be a, a burdensome item. But the reason they said uh, they were delaying it is because they felt it was burdensome due to the national staffing and medical supply shortages coupled with unprecedented changes in patient case volumes. So not a good reason for uh, making it a uh, voluntary at this point, but uh, certainly we're happy that it was not implemented. And then lastly, CMS is also seeking comment on measures and topics for future considerations, such as including re-implementation of the ASC volume on selected ASC surgical procedures, which was a number of years ago, ASC 7, um, or adoption of another volume indicator as a quality measure, such as a specialty center approach for ASC quality measures and interoperability and EHR use in the ASC QR program. So we'll have to see where that heads. Again, not a very exciting quality reporting update this year. But in many ways, that's kind of nice. It gives us a breather here to kind of implement all Mm -hmm. the other programs that we have. So, Sue, how could we (laughs) not 
talk about monkeypox. Um, well, I think I tried not to talk about monkeypox. <laughs> you but did, but we feel that it's important yeah. to at least mention monkeypox. So go ahead, give us the monkeypox update. <laughs> I know. Now that we're not talking so much about COVID, <laughs> just throw monkeypox <laughs> in frankly, there. Frankly, I think I'd like to go back to talking about COVID <laughs> after monkeypox. Sorry. <laughs> So Saturday morning, um, the World Health Organization declared the monkeypox outbreak a public health emergency of international concern. So I looked into it a little bit. Some background, monkeypox was first discovered in 1958 after two outbreaks were seen in laboratory monkeys in Copenhagen, Denmark. The first human case was recorded in 1970. The virus is endemic in several African countries, and currently there are over 2,500 cases in the U.S., and that was as of a week or two ago, so it's probably higher. Um, New York, California, and Illinois are among the states that um, have the highest numbers. And, Sue, they're largely in <clears throat> urban centers, too, right? Mm -hmm, you mentioned mm -hmm. those. I'm assuming it's the big cities in California, New York City, and probably Chicago and Illinois. Yeah, and the outbreaks actually are currently concentrated among um, men who have sex with men, especially those who have multiple partners. In parts of Africa, it's thought more to be transmitted from animals during hunting activities. The most likely reservoir for the virus are small mammals such as prairie dogs and other rodents. So it's kind of a misnomer calling it monkeypox, yeah, but it's yeah. just because that's where it was first identified. I don't there. remember the last time I saw a prairie dog in our backyard. Yeah, yeah. nope. Um, according to the CDC, the virus can spread from person to person through direct contact with the infectious rash, scabs, or bodily fluids, respiratory secretions through prolonged face-to-face -face contact, such as during intimate physical contact, um, kissing, cuddling, or sex, uh, touching items such as clothing or linens that previously touched the infectious rash or body fluids, and pregnant people can spread the virus to their fetus through the placenta. While there's no actual treatment for monkeypox, some people with compromised immune systems could benefit from antivirals if they're given at the correct time. Um, because it is genetically similar to smallpox, the vaccines and the antivirals developed for smallpox may be used in the future to prevent severe illness. Um, the initial symptoms are flu-like, fever, sore throat, cough, headaches, muscle aches, lethargy, and swollen lymph nodes, which they did say the lymph nodes weren't generally seen in smallpox, the swollen lymph nodes. That seems to be the one thing that differentiates. Um, this is followed by a painful rash, which can appear anywhere on the body. The lesions scab over and resolve within two to three weeks, and at that point, the person's no longer contagious. Now, the fatality rate in the modern day now is approximately 3 to 6% which I know might be surprising to some people yeah, that, that it is yeah. it is quite low, so that's good. Um, but it can be really painful if you've seen any pictures of those, that rash. It um, looks awful, and it can result in scarring from that rash. Um, and according to the CDC, standard precautions should be applied for all patient care, um, including for patients with suspected monkeypox. Um, if a patient seeking care is suspected to have monkeypox, infection prevention and control personnel should be notified immediately. Um, avoid doing any activities that could resuspend dried materials from the lesion, such as um, portable fans, dry dusting, sweeping or vacuuming, wet cleaning is recommended. And that's pretty much across the board anyways. Right. I know that's what we always recommend. And if you were to have a patient with suspected or confirmed monkeypox infection, they should be placed in a single-person room. Special air handling is not required. Um, you would keep the door closed, though, if it, as long as it's safe to do so and limit any movement outside of, of that room. And if they were taken out of the room, use um, 
a medical mask and and covering the skin lesions with a sheet or a gown because that's that is how it's mostly transmitted and anything that would likely spread oral secretions like intubation and extubation you'd want to perform that in an airborne infection isolation room now obviously all of that is pretty preliminary because we're not thank goodness seeing a lot of it around here but and I'm sure more will come out if it does continue to to um, increase and they would recommend that you'd wear gown gloves eye protection and like an n95 um, respirator so I think the biggest takeaway is we do have to take it seriously. I know mm-hmm. we, unfortunately, we joke about it a little bit too much in the industry right now, given, you know, some of the other things that we uh, had to deal with over the last couple of years. Uh, but it needs to be taken seriously. And, of course, screening for the patient mm-hmm. is the most important thing here uh, for us to remember to do. Yeah. And the good thing is, though, it is it does seem to be much harder to transmit. You actually have to come in contact with right. some of these things or at least very close proximity to people. And then in... Uh, Becker's hospital review for July 19th, they outlined an emerging issue with hospitals having to cut back on services due to staff shortages. And just a few examples, they said two hospitals in Ohio are cutting out their inpatient, their surgical and emergency services. And some hospitals in other states are closing um, their birthing centers. Some are closing intensive care units or addiction and, and psychiatry practices. And a hospital in Wyoming was said they were spending over um, $100,000 a week on travel nurses in their labor and delivery department. So they've just had to decide to close that unit to save money. So, you know, some of the closings they say might be temporary, but you think of the people in those areas, how much, how inconvenient it would be if yeah. you had to, you know, if all of a sudden your birthing center closed um, or the intensive care. That That's kind of scary where especially those are needed so much right now. Mm-hmm. And um, I know you've had an experience recently with an emergency department. I think anybody that has realizes already how short-staffed everybody is and how we just we need more space in the hospitals than not less. Yeah, I think uh, my mother was uh, in the emergency department for three days. She never made it out of the emergency department. She, uh, she went home uh, before she was actually able to get a, a room. Mm-hmm. And the hospital was running at 100% capacity. And, of mm-hmm. course, it was not due to COVID. I mean, there was mm-hmm. COVID patients there. Yeah. But it being over 100% had more to do with the fact that the community just doesn't have enough beds. You know, yeah. New York, I don't think is unique. But New York has done a particularly good job of shutting down hospitals mm-hmm. over the last 20, 30 years in order to save money. And I think that was very ill-conceived, unfortunately. And I think we're starting to see that. And Sue, I think, you know, we've got a double whammy here, really. Mm -hmm. We've got the problem that we just never really had enough hospital room beds to be able to handle a sudden increase in volume. I think... No, even when when I worked at the hospital, and this was, you know, several years ago, and we'd always be just on the verge. You know, there was always... At least every couple of weeks, we'd have to keep some of the kids in, you know, waiting in the ER forever because we just, you know, you were always just barely making that by getting yeah. somebody out and cleaning it up and getting somebody in. And I always thought, well, that just doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, we're always just barely making it. And then something like this happens and then you lose nurses because, you know, some... Um, conflicts with the vaccine and that kind of thing. And now we're really, really hurting. And we're not ready for another pandemic. Now, hopefully this has been a lesson learned and, and we can yeah. kind of have those, even if they just have extra beds that aren't being used sometimes. But I know there's a whole political financial sort of 
thing behind that. But Well, let's hope things will improve, but it's mm-hmm. certainly a challenge for us. And of course, the impact yeah. for us as surgery centers is mm-hmm. that uh, we're going after the same pool of nurses. Yeah. Uh, and of course, we're more appealing. I mean, who wouldn't want to work in a surgery center compared to working in the emergency mm-hmm. room unless that's truly your passion? And many people are, you yeah. know, do have a passion for it. And we are obviously struggling with staffing just like the hospitals, but yeah. hopefully we can also be kind of an answer to some of that, take some of those services you know, provide those services and take some of the burden off of the hospital right. so people have, have more choices. Free up the uh, surgery area so that they're available for other purposes. Mm-hmm. So, Well, let's take a short break and we'll come back and we'll talk about one of my favorite topics, actually, which is incident reporting, and uh, we'll do a deep dive into it. So uh, let's take this break. The ASC Podcast with John Gailey and our virtual conferences would not be possible without the support of our sponsors and patrons. Our goal with this podcast is to help busy ASC executives and staff to keep up with the latest news, learn how to remain compliant with regulations and accreditation standards, and to provide opportunities for ASC leaders to advance in their careers. All of this, of course, costs money, and without our sponsor partners and our patrons, we would not be able to provide this service. Surgical Information Systems was an early sponsor that leads the industry with their software solutions. SIS's mission is to deliver solutions and services that help surgery providers, regardless of care setting, improve their organization so they can deliver the highest level of care to their patients. For more information, visit their website at sisfirst.com. Our newest sponsor is Trivalence. The Trivalence solution is focused on removing waste from the healthcare payments ecosystem by creating the next generation data-driven supply chain automation and payment optimization portal and infrastructure, saving countless hours, administrative costs, and allowing for scale. For more information, visit trivalence.com. That's T-R-I-V-A-L-E-N-C-E.com. Our oldest sponsor, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, is the nation's leader in outsourced regulatory and accreditation oversight. Busy administrators, nurse managers, and medical directors simply don't have the time to keep up with the constantly changing regulatory environment and the requirements of the conditions for coverage and accreditation organizations. AHS helps you to remain compliant for a reasonable fixed monthly fee so you and your staff can focus on taking care of your patients. For more information, visit ah-strategies.com. And last, but certainly not least, our patrons. For a reasonable monthly cost, our patrons support the podcast while receiving access to a database of important information, such as policies, forums, grills, and education programs, as well as the ability to meet weekly via Zoom with each other and the staff of the ASC Podcast. Visit ASCPodcast.com for more information. as we mentioned uh, earlier, we get a lot of suggestions during our Saturday drop-in sessions and when we visit people that listen to our podcast at conferences. And one of the issues that was brought up uh, a number of times is incident reporting. Uh, Things like, you know, uh, an incident form, like what type of incident report form might be available. Let's just give a little bit of a background on this and that incident reporting and reporting of all types of occurrences and incidents, adverse events and near misses is frequently a problem during a survey. 
especially with new or what I would call minimally compliant ASCs. In other words, it's not an infrequent item that we find during surveys that people Mm -hmm. just don't have an incident reporting system at all or don't have a robust system. Having a good incident reporting system is is absolutely critical in your organization. And the importance of teaching employees and physicians and other providers about incident reporting uh, cannot be uh, overstated here. So, Sue, why don't you talk about the uh, – why don't you go ahead? Why don't you just go into it instead of using my lead-in? So the most applicable um, condition for coverage is 416.43, quality assessment and performance improvement. And the interpretive guidelines for it say – The QAPI conditions for coverage requires an ASC to take a proactive, comprehensive, and ongoing approach. Important words, right? Proactive, comprehensive, and ongoing approach to improving the quality and safety of the surgical services it delivers. The QAPI conditions for coverage um, presumes that the ASCs employ a systems approach to evaluating their systems and processes, identifying problems that have occurred or that potentially might result from the ASC's practices, and getting to the root causes of problems rather than just superficially addressing one problem at a time. From a survey perspective, the focus of the QAPI condition is not on whether an ASC has any deficient practices, but rather on whether it has an effective ongoing system in place for identifying problematic events, policies, or practices, and taking actions to remedy them, and then following up on those remedial actions to determine if they were effective in improving performance and quality. Quapi programs work best in an environment that fixes problems rather than assigning blame. So one of the misconceptions about incident reporting is that you're going to get into trouble, that Mm -hmm. every time that you do an incident report, that a surveyor is going to come down and say, oh, wow, this is a great example of bad quality care. Mm-hmm. And it's exactly the opposite. This is this is what I always find challenging when talking to centers when I'm doing a survey for you know an accreditation organization or when we get a new client that has not done incident reporting in the fa- past. And this is what I always say is that you are not really going to get in trouble for incident reporting unless it shows really bad quality mm-hmm. care. Yeah. You are going to get into trouble, though, if you don't do incident reporting. Because if you don't do incident reporting, basically what you're saying is you really don't have a robust quality improvement program. And I think there's a number of very critical points in that interpretive guidelines, in those interpretive guidelines. Let's just go through them. First of all, the system, and I'm just going to pull uh, terms out, Sue, that you stated Mm -hmm. in the interpretive guidelines. The first thing is proactive. In other words, we shouldn't be just reactively dealing with things that happen. We should Mm -hmm. be proactively looking at activities that resulted in an outcome that wasn't quite perfect for our operation. And that can include near misses, too, because you're trying to identify things before something um, adverse happens. And then the second critical point is it has to be comprehensive. It needs to be something that's not superficial. I think actually that's the term uh, that's used up above in the uh, interpretive guidelines. Uh, It has to be comprehensive. You have to try to look for every little thing. I keep saying if you haven't had any incident reports in the last quarter, lower the bar. Start looking for other examples of things that you might want to include. If you don't have any transfers to the hospital or infections, which hopefully you don't, Mm -hmm. then, uh, you know, lower the bar. Maybe every uh, every uh, cancellation that you have on the day of surgery will become an incident report until you have other types of incident reports. You know, you don't have to do those, but there's things that you can learn from each of those incidents that do occur or each of those activities that occur. So keep lowering the bar until you have a number of incidents. I like to see like five to 10 
incidents during a quarter. Now, that's not a hard and fast rule. It's mm-hmm. certainly not written anywhere in the regulations. Yeah. And you might be working in a small operation mm-hmm. that doesn't even have, um, you know, the opportunity yeah. to get up to that number. But you should be encouraging this and, and doing something uh, on an annual basis with your staff that encourages them to do that. Then another critical point is identifying problems. You want to look at your operation, identify those things that are less than perfect. You know, transfers to the hospital are not ideal for the patient. Cancellations of cases on the day of surgery are not ideal. Uh, any of those things that you did, where it's not the expected outcome are uh, a good opportunity to put together an incident report. Another critical point is you have to you want to get to the root cause of problems rather than superficially addressing one problem at a time. So a focus during a survey is not on whether you have a problem, but whether you have a process to review that problem. As was stated in the interpretive guidelines, QAPI programs work best in an environment that fixes problems rather than assigning blame. Remember a number of years ago, I was uh, uh, working with an organization that had just started up. And during the quality improvement committee meeting, we started off by listing the incidents And during this meeting, the director of operations, who was not a nurse, who was actually a PA, Mm -hmm. said uh, every time we brought up an incident report, she was saying, oh, my God, that's terrible. Uh, Who was that person? We need to put them on report. We need to write them up. And that is the exact opposite of what we want to do. We want to make sure that people feel very safe to bring these incidents up and make sure that somebody learns from that process. So you need to have an incident reporting process. Uh, you need to train your staff every year. Spend, you know, 15, 20 minutes talking to everybody. And this includes the providers, by the way. And mm-hmm. I guess I need to emphasize again, you need to be training your providers every year. I know you don't do it in many cases. And maybe those doctors are so smart that they've heard it over and over again. But they don't know your incident reporting program unless you tell them about it. And then the same thing with your staff. And you want to encourage them to do these incident reports. You want to encourage them to find opportunities for improvement. And by mm-hmm. the way, doing this is going to actually help your, your employee satisfaction mm-hmm. because they know that somebody is looking into opportunities for improvement and are mm-hmm. acting upon them. Uh, I know that might sound counterintuitive, but again, that concept that you don't want to put blame on somebody is very mm-hmm. critical to your uh, your proper identification of incidents. And everybody wants to feel like they're working at a really high-quality organization. Yeah. And if they know they can take part in, in making um, your patient care even better and safer, then, you know, they're just going to be that much more loyal to you. Right. Absolutely. So uh, as part of your training, you want to make sure that your providers and your employees know the process uh, and how to use it, and and that they're supportive of it. I always say that uh, it's always a great opportunity, Sue, right, to identify a champion. Maybe there's going to be mm-hmm. one doctor, hopefully there's going to be one doctor among your medical staff who really does understand this, who becomes passionate about it. And if you don't have that doctor, look for somebody that you might be able to turn into that uh, supportive individual. Teach them how to fill out those forms. And remember, as part of the incident reporting process, you fill out the form but you do not include it in the medical record. This is something that's kept uh, as privileged information that's part of the quality improvement program. And what I mean is it's privileged. It means that during a subpoena, unless you make a mistake and accidentally allow this to be uh, provided to the, the plaintiff's attorney, mm-hmm. um, it is privileged and cannot actually be part of a subpoena. And then you need to investigate and conclude, or what we call closing the loop. What you want to do is look at what occurred. 
uh, were the policies appropriate and did everybody follow those policies? If that's the case, then closing the loop is see, simply saying, hey, it just happened. You know, it, you transferred somebody to the hospital, uh, your policies went well, you identified the problem, it just happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and you did the right thing. Um, and that's okay. And maybe, I, I mean, I don't really have any anything but anecdotal evidence to this effect, but most of the uh, incidents that, that come out of reporting probably fall into this category. Another thing that might happen, though, as a result of your investigation is that you need to change a policy. You need to uh, create a new policy, update a policy, or provide additional information. And in that case, you have to uh, implement that policy, get it approved by the governing body, and of course, educate your staff on that. And then a third situation could be where you do have a policy, the policy is appropriate, but your staff did not actually follow that policy. And in that situation, closing the loop is going to involve retraining your staff or retraining that particular individual. Mm -hmm. And that's what we call closing the loop. You want to make sure when you're doing incident reporting that you're not just addressing the single incident. You address the process. Let's give an example. Let's say you transfer a patient to a hospital due to a cardiac event that occurred during or after surgery. What you don't want to do is just tell us in that incident report how the patient did. Closing the loop doesn't mean the patient went to the hospital, they were uh, you know, given uh, cardiac medications, and now they're under the care of a cardiologist and close the loop there. That is not proper incident reporting. That's part of it, and it's important to know how that patient did. But what we want to do is we don't want to address just that single incident. We want to address that process. So what are we going to do as a result of that particular incident? Well, was there something different that you could have done during the procedure? Was there, uh, was this patient, I think the most critical question, especially Mm -hmm. the example I just gave, Sue, is was this patient an appropriate candidate for surgery for that procedure? Um, That could very well be a problem. If you see, and again, you always want to do tracking and trending of these incidents too. Um, If you see a lot of patients coming through and and having cardiac issues, maybe you're not screening those patients appropriately. And that means that you're not providing the highest quality care in your organization. If you can screen them beforehand, that would reduce the possibility that they're going to have an unfavorable outcome. Then you also want to look at things like, in this situation, did the transfer go smoothly? Is there anything that you could have done as part of the process? Did you call EMS too soon? Did you call them too late? Did you communicate with the incoming hospital? Did you have problems getting a hold of the incoming hospital? How did you transfer that patient? Was the, uh, you know, did your staff appropriately get the uh, EMS people into your operation? Uh, Was that smooth during the event? Maybe it was a cardiac event that involved the CPR. Did everything happen appropriately? Uh, Did you have all the appropriate equipment that you needed? Uh, Could you improve that process with more training? And that's another frequent outcome here is that, you know, hopefully these things are few and far between. And what you do is you realize as a result of the incident report that you do, uh, that you create afterwards, that, you know, maybe a little bit more training made made that process smoother. Again, we do not want to place blame here. What we want to do is we want to encourage people to report this so we can learn from these infrequent events so that they do go more smoothly in the future. So what I've just described is is indeed what we would call comprehensive. It's a comprehensive look. And by the way, if you do this and you show this incident report to a surveyor, you are going to, even though this was not a great outcome, that a patient went to a hospital and had a cardiac event, 
But if you have an incident report that looks into all of these things, you're literally going to be praised by the surveyors for having a comprehensive system. You'll have demonstrated to the surveyors that you have a quality improvement program that identifies items proactively. And by doing this, this is how you can improve your operations. Mm -hmm. This is how you can make sure you learn from the past. And this is how you can assure that you avoid problems in the future. So many times we're asked questions about examples of Mm -hmm. incident reports. Do you want to talk about a couple of them? Yeah. um, Like you said, you can, it, it kind of depends on how deeply you want to look into it, but obviously transfers, falls, for employees, you know, a, a needle stick right. and um, any IV infiltrations. We've heard of, you know, people sometimes leaving the center with their IV intact. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, that, that requires retraining and, and possibly adding some things to your policy to make sure those are being checked. I think other examples include equipment malfunctions uh, mm-hmm. during the procedure mm-hmm. that might have yeah. resulted in the procedure not being able to be completed mm-hmm. or delayed. Uh, sterilization failures. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, even I, I like to even document things where you've uh, you've dropped an instrument and had to re-sterilize mm-hmm. it because no backup instrument was involved. Yeah. You know, you could report that in other ways. There's other mechanisms mm-hmm. for reporting it back to quality improvement, but instant reports could be a, an appropriate mm-hmm. way of doing. It. So I want you to think broadly about how to do incident reporting. The more robust your incident reporting system is, the more likely that you're going to be able to demonstrate to a surveyor that you truly have a a, a vibrant quality improvement program. Mm-hmm. Yep, and anything, I was just going to throw in there, anything that delays or cancels a procedure, like you said, any any day of service cancellations. And that could be anything from health issues, from people not prepping right. Right. To as you said, malfunctions uh, of the equipment. So, and let's not for, for forget our favorite topic. We don't have Lori on today, but her favorite area, of course, is is uh, infection control mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and any breaches in and that could very well turn into an incident report. Any problems uh, that you have uh, in assuring that people are following you know appropriate infection mm-hmm. control practices, medication issues, yeah, missing medications. That's a serious one, right. but yeah. So definitely think very broadly when you're thinking about incident reporting, and hopefully this uh, section has given you some ideas for how to do it in the future. Let's take a short break, and we'll come back, and we'll talk about upcoming events in the industry. In this segment, we provide an update on upcoming topics for the podcast, our upcoming virtual conferences, upcoming speaking engagements for John and his staff, and other events in the ASC industry. In August, uh, starting August 30th, we have the next Administrators Boot Camp, ASC Administrators Boot Camp. Uh, and this is going to be a four-day uh, mentored program. So there'll be a four-day virtual conference starting on a Tuesday on the 30th and going through, I think it's uh, September 2nd. And that uh, is a very intensive program, eight hours a day of of, uh, sessions about what are the requirements to be an administrator. Also helps people to prepare for the CASC exam if that's something that they're uh, interested in. And the program doesn't just stop with or doesn't start or stop uh, with the actual virtual conference. We have ongoing mentoring, what we talked about with our our weekly drop-in sessions, Mm -hmm. uh, individual sessions, if you wish, with the uh, speakers, uh, and, of course, access to our uh, patron program and our huge database of information. And the California Ambulatory Surgery Association's annual s- conference and exhibits on September 7th through 9th at the Hyatt Regency Indian Wells Resort and Spa in Indian Wells, California. 
and John will be doing a finance boot camp there. And we're looking forward. Hopefully, Sue, you might be coming with me. We're not quite sure yet what's going on with that. Uh, we have been told that the temperature there is about over 100 degrees, so <laughs> yes. I'm not sure that either of us are looking forward to uh, going outside, but I know mm-hmm. the uh, the venue is beautiful, and mm-hmm. we love being yeah. with our friends at the California Association, and we haven't been able to do that since the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And September 15th and 16th, we have our uh, ASC Finance, Accounting, and Reimbursement Seminar, which is going to be presented virtually with our dear friend uh, Christine Benton with uh, Coding Compliance Management. Going to go over all things finance, accounting, and reimbursement on this uh, comprehensive two-day conference. So uh, make sure you go to ASCPodcast.com for more information uh, both about the boot camp and, of course, this finance and accounting seminar. And don't forget about our recorded events, which are all available on ASCPodcast.com. We have the Credentialing Conference, the Fall 2021 Finance and Accounting Conference, uh, Conditions for Coverage Conference, the Medical Director Conference, and the Administrator's Boot Camp Self-Paced Version. Also, the Director of Nursing Boot Camp Self-Paced Version as well. And again, I always want to remind people about our patron program. It's a wonderful program. We have over 130, uh, actually, I think it's over 150 now patron members of the program. It's also known as ASC Central, and it's an exclusive membership website that provides a one-stop ASC regulatory and accreditation compliance operations and financial management resource for busy administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers. Resources include some of our virtual conferences, links, policies and procedures, forms, drills, and, of course, discounts on services and books, as well as access to AEU credits. Membership helps to defray the cost of producing the podcast, including research staff, travel costs to conferences, equipment costs, and production costs. For more information, you can visit ASCPodcast.com. That's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. Please spread the word about our podcast with your friends and your colleagues and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosia, Alex Borneman, Zach Kelwrightis, Amy Durbano, Lori Rodericks, and Ann Geyer. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah. And the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, Trivalence, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Surgical Information Systems provides cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable insights. Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies is the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute, legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you are interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.